This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all enjoying the beautiful spring weather. The birds are back, and it is wonderful to hear their cheerful song when I step outside in the early morning to check on my gardens. Spring always gives me extra energy. I've got a pep in my step, and it's a good thing because I have several trays of native seedlings due to arrive at my house any day now, and I am busy preparing the garden for my new transplants. I think we've got a great show for you today. Today we'll be talking to Mariette Nowick, an expert in native plants. She'll be telling us all about native shrubs that are beneficial to birds. And now for some interesting news. As gardeners, we have all heard the hype about earthworms. They eat and break down food scraps, cycling beneficial nutrients back into the soil through their castings. This may be great for your worm composter or your raised vegetable bed, but it is definitely not good for America's forests. The truth is, the earthworm is non-native and hasn't been seen on this continent since the last ice age, meaning forest ecosystems have successfully evolved without them. Enter a new non-native called the jumping worm, brought into the U.S. through mulch, gardening soil, and plants from Korea and Japan. They are also called snake worms or crazy worms. Scientists have been greatly alarmed to learn these ravenous worms are quickly making their way to northern forests in the U.S., chewing up nutrients on the forest floor that would otherwise decompose and feed native insects, amphibians, birds, trees, and native plants. The jumping worm inhabits the top six inches of soil, turning it into what looks like useless coffee grounds. Some areas already affected? The Great Smoky Mountains, Oregon, Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota, and Illinois. And yes, they can now be found in parts of New England. It looks a lot like any other earthworm, long and thin, with rosy brown skin divided into segments. But scientists say to examine the clitellum. In European worms, the smooth pink clitellum is found closer to the middle of the body. On jumping worms, it's white in color and sits near the head. They thrash wildly when disturbed, hence the name jumping. Scientists are recommending that people refrain from buying mulch, topsoil, compost, or plants that are infested with jumping worms. They recommend inspecting plants and soil carefully before buying. They are also advising people to be especially careful when sharing plant material at community plant sales and plant swaps. Jumping worms are often billed as night crawlers and sold as fishing bait or for use in worm composting. Researchers are saying it is best to avoid buying them. Scientists are also saying not to rake up leaves and transport them to a landfill, as leaf collection appears to be hastening the spread of the jumping worms and their cocoons. They are also advising gardeners to be on the alert and to report any jumping worms found to state authorities. 
If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. I have to say it's an honor for me to introduce today's guest. Her name is Marriott Nowick, and she is a legend in the gardening world. She wrote one of the seminal works on native plants. Her book, Birdscaping in the Midwest, A Guide to Gardening with Native Plants to Attract Birds, is referred to by many as a Bible for native gardening. She published her book back in 2007, when no one was really linking the shocking numbers of birds disappearing from people's backyards with a lack of native food sources. Like Sarah Stein, she has been patiently tolling the bell all these years, urging us to get back to native plantings to help the birds. Today, we are going to talk about her book, and she's also going to suggest some native shrubs we can grow to benefit the birds. Marriott, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. With spring coming, everyone's excited about growing new plants and shrubs and trees. Could we perhaps talk about native shrubs that benefit wildlife like the birds? Oh, yes, definitely. Shrubs are just really important and wonderful for birds in many ways. Could you suggest a few shrubs to our listeners that they can plant in their yards? Sure. One thing I should mention is that in my book, although it's the title says Midwest, I looked up almost all of the shrubs in my book, and they're all very good for almost the entire eastern coast. And Stephen Kress, who is an ornithologist with Audubon on the east coast, said that my book would be very helpful for the eastern coast states too. So I just wanted to mention that. But at any rate, some of my favorite shrubs are dogwoods and also viburnums. But dogwoods are, have, have wonderful berries for the birds, of course, very beautiful flowers to attract insects earlier. The berries are very high fat, so they're wonderful for migrating birds. And migrating birds really can sometimes gobble up all of the berries in a short time. So the high fat really helps them put on the fat for migration. So those are very important. And by the way, there's dogwoods for almost every kind of situation you might have in your yard. There's dogwoods for wet areas, dry areas, shadier areas, sunnier areas. And then there's a beautiful pagoda dogwood, which has layers of horizontal layers of branches, sort of like a pagoda, which is why it's called that. And it's sometimes called alternate leaved dogwood because it's the only dogwood that has alternate leaves. I'd suggest dogwoods as one of the prime ones. Now, viburnums are another great group of shrubs. Again, all kinds of varieties in that some would be better for wet or dry areas, etc. They tend to hold on to their berries a little longer. So they're great for later fall and into winter. They don't have as much fat in them, but that means they don't rot so much and they'll, you know, as quickly as a high fat berry would but they're eaten up anyway, mostly by the birds. But anyway, they last a little longer and are good for late fall and even into winter. Sometimes even some of them remain into spring for birds. So those are two great groups of shrubs to consider. I'm not sure if the viburnum beetle is a problem out by you in your area, but it's starting to be a problem here. But there are several native viburnums that are more resistant to that invasive beetle which is a non-native beetle, of course. Most of our problems come from non-native insects. And the two are black haw, 
viburnum and nanny berry viburnum. Just going back to dogwoods now, pl- tell our listeners, if you would, please, the best time to plant them and, and how to do that. Okay, well, the best time to plant most plants are early in spring, but fall is also a good time for shrubs or any other plants. I'd still say spring is the best time. And of course, you want to dig a wider hole than the root ball of the shrub. And you also want to make sure that you don't plant it too deep. In fact, maybe even a little higher because sometimes they sink a little bit. So that can be harmful to shrubs if you plant them too deep. And then what I like to do, at least for a short while, is to put wood chips around them, but not right next to the stem. You don't want that, but just um, around the surface area around them to keep down competition for a while while they're getting started. Most shrubs, by the way, do best in flower and fruit best in sunny areas. So a woodland edge is very good. There are a few that like a little more wet soil, and then you might want to tuck them into a little bit of shade if you do you know, if that's the best damp soil you have. But uh, yeah, if you want them to fruit and uh, flower a lot, the sun is best. And also, I might say that often the fall color of the native shrubs are best in the sun. One of the the viburnums I have is just beautiful in the sun, but if it's in the shade, it's a lot less uh, showy in the fall. So that's something to consider also if you like color, as we all do. Now, is it the same for dogwoods? Will they do well in part sun with damp soil, or do they prefer full sun? Oh, oh no. Just like viburnums, there's dogwoods of all different species, and it depends on the species. Some like wet soil. For example, red osier dogwood, as you might know, is oftentimes in, in swampy areas even, in their native habitat. And then there's some that like dry areas, like I mentioned, the gray dogwood. It's the same with viburnums. Some of them like drier or wetter areas, and some of them can take a little more shade. There's a lot of variety in the species, and you can certainly find that out on many websites, and there's a lot of good books that you can check on. In fact, my book, I give a lot of cultural information like that, whether they can tolerate some shade, whether they like wet areas or dry areas. I have, in fact, a chapter on a shrubland garden for birds, and I also have one on stopover habitat, which is very important for birds and also for migrating birds, of course. And also it's kind of a garden that would do well, even for small properties. You know, at least even if you can't, it's, your property is too small for nesting birds, they could well help migrating birds and be a, a little stopover habitat by providing those berries like dogwood berries that can help the birds um, put on fat before they migrate on. Right. So important. So now you, your book, Birdscaping in the Midwest, A Guide to Gardening with Native Plants to Attract Birds, you published that book in 2012, which just shows you were kind of ahead of the curve. You were way <laughs> ahead of most of us. There are a lot of us now that are just figuring it out that our wildlife, especially our birds, need native plants in order to survive. What was it back then that caught your attention that got you to writing this book? Well, first of all, I'd like to tell you that it was actually published in 2007 by a small Wisconsin publisher, and then it was taken up by the UW University of Wisconsin Press. I was the nature director at a large nature center in Milwaukee County for many years, and through those years, I had always written little pamphlets for the people in our county. 
about landscaping with for, in woodlands or prairies and so forth. And I was able, when I retired, I was able to expand on that. And knowing that birds are so charismatic for most people, I thought, you know, we need to show how native plants really help the birds so much. So that's what I, I decided to do. And I have about nine different kinds of bird gardens that you could consider like a oak savanna bluebird garden, a hummingbird garden, and as I said, shrubland garden and the stopover habitat garden and so forth. So there's uh, a variety of different kinds of habitat and, and you can create the one that most fits your particular property. Or you can have several in different parts of your property if you have a big enough property. That's great. So you were even further ahead so, of the curve than I thought. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the thought. <laughs> so who were you reading at that time? Were you reading Sarah Stein back in 2007? I mean, who who were the nature writers that you were uh, attracted to? Yeah, Sarah Stein was a big one. And I'm trying to think who else might be. I guess I just, um, I can't think of people now, but there were people here in the Milwaukee and Wisconsin area who were avid native plant people like Loriato, who was one of the founding members from Wild Ones. And she was a very charismatic and, and uh, excellent speaker. And she had encouraged and, and inspired many people to do native landscaping. I just, because I've always been interested in birds, I wanted to focus on birds and native landscaping. So that's how that happened. Right. Did you read Mirabelle Osler, A Gentle Plea for Chaos? No, I did not read okay. that one. That sounds interesting. She's a, a writer from like the U, from the UK, but her book, which came out roughly the same time as Sarah Stein was talking about how our our yards are just too manicured. I think she even used the term masculinized. The feminine aspect of the yard had been changed to a masculine straight corners, everything mowed to within an inch of its life type of thing. Is that something well, that was getting to you too around that time? <laughs> yes. Laurie Otto actually had a, a phrase I always liked, the tyranny of the tidy yard. <laughs> not only is it a tyranny for you to all that work that you put in, but it is definitely not that great for birds and wildlife. You, you need to have even a, you could have manicured in the front if you want, but I don't actually encourage your front garden even to be, or your front yard to be lawn, because what do we do in our front lawns? We will mow them, fertilize them, and so forth. And yet, we never use them. <laughs> so in a way, a front yard is the ideal place to have a native garden. And I did that when I lived in a suburban area in the Milwaukee area. I had a one-fourth acre lot, and the front yard was the sunniest. So that's where I planted my prairie. I did go to our, our village board and made sure that it was okay with them. I had to submit a plan. This was kind of early on before all that, but I'm glad I did because if there were complaints, I never heard about them. They did say I had to keep a little bit of uh, edge to the lawn because that was part of the right of way for the road that, you know, in case they ever wanted to widen the road. But that actually gave a more in a sense of um, like a manicured edge and it blended in with the lawns on each side of me. And I think it's important to make sure your, especially your front lawn isn't, or your front garden isn't, or native landscaping isn't too wild because you really want to make sure that people enjoy the wildflowers. 
My next door neighbor said it was like having a park next door. So she really liked it. And I had people actually come to the door and say, well, did you get any complaints or anything? Because people were really interested. In, I think it's a lot less of a problem today in most areas, but I'm not sure. There probably are still areas where there are complaints. Right. So I, I just think it's so important for Native gardeners to be powers of example. So having Natives in the front yard is a wonderful thing, but also keeping things somewhat neat and tidy in the front area so that you're not turning people off to the idea of natives. Does that sound? Exactly. Yes. Actually, I I was asked to look at one person's property because he had complaints, but it was very messy and everything. It wasn't something you'd want in your front yard. I felt sorry to say that I wasn't going to support him in this, but I thought the front yard, you want to have a showcase and make sure it's nice. And most most native plant gardeners do do that. Another thing to always keep in mind is that you could put up a sign like this is a pollinator garden or this is, a, you know, some kind of bee garden or, you know, there's all kinds of signs you can get from the National Wildlife Federation. The wild ones have a sign you can put up to make sure that people realize that it's a, a very, you know, a planned landscape. One person even put up just a sign bird sanctuary after he had had a lot of complaints and he never got complaints after that. So just putting up your own bird sanctuary sign might help. That is a great idea. You don't want anyone to think your house has been abandoned. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to let it go to the point where they're wondering, hmm, is that house empty? <laughs> right that little mode strip did it for me (laughs) right right it's amazing how just by tweaking your front yard your your front native yard a little bit you can help educate the neighbors you know I have a lot of parents with their children in front of my front yard ooing and awing like look at the butterflies look at those birds oh that's you know yeah so I am careful to keep the edges under control just so I'm not scaring anybody Right. That's it. <laughs> yeah, we want, you know, people friendly front yards. Right. For sure. right. <laughs> being bird friendly. So when your book first came out, did you feel like you were the voice in the wilderness? Like, were you wondering, was is anyone going to come around to your suggestions? I think even at that time, more and more people were getting interested in native landscaping. For example, the National Wildlife Federation had their backyard habitat certification program and people were starting to do that. I think they call it something a little different today, I noticed, but even then people were, and by the way, you can get signs from them too, to certify your habitat. And I did that also. So that's another kind of way you can, um, you know, that, that they were encouraging that at that time. So it was the start of the movement at that time. Right. You were really at the forefront. And now Doug Tallamy sort of stepped in with his two books. Now he's got a third book on oaks. A third book. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, I haven't I haven't read that yet. I just ordered it from the library to take a look at it. But uh, yeah, I just heard about it. I was at a conference talking about birds and shrubs. This was a wildlife conference in Michigan. But uh, Dr. Jill, what was her last name? Anyway, she had done some research and was talking about birds and their need for native shrubs. She had done studies of several species and found that especially catbirds 
had worse health indicators if they were in a non-native habitat with a lot of non-native shrubs like buckthorn and honeysuckle. They had lower immunity status and they had fewer antioxidants. So they were really getting into depth in this. So, and that was compared to those birds that were in a native habitat. Also, when the birds had the choice, they were feeding much more readily in the native shrubs. In one case, it was over 250% more in the native shrubland compared to the non-native shrubs. So it is extremely important to have those native shrubs there has been a co-evolution between birds and plants, and plants have actually done, they're, you know, sitting in one place, they have evolved to attract birds to disperse their seeds, and that the seeds, of course, are in those fruits, so the birds feed those uh, on those berries, but they don't damage the seeds. The seeds pass through them, either they regurgitate the seeds or they poop them out, so they help spread those seeds around. If the berries and seeds just fell below the shrubs, there would be too much competition and shade from the mature plants and so forth. So this is a whole strategy. And the color, too, is just, I talk about this in the beginning of my book, about all the co-evolution that's so fascinating. The colors are meant of all those berries, you know, reds and purples and so forth. They're all meant to attract birds to feed on them. They also, even the timing for migration, a lot of the best high fat berries like dogwoods and spice bush is a, a great one too, are ripe just at the peak of migration for the birds. So they've timed it. And the interesting thing is in the north, these berries ripen about a month earlier than in the south. And this would almost seem counterintuitive because you would think that in the south, the berries would ripen faster because there's been a longer growing season. But no, the berries ripen more like in New England than in some of the southern states. So that's just so fascinating, all the co-evolution right. that goes on between birds and shrubs. So now we talked about dogwood and we talked about viburnum. Are there any other shrubs you would recommend to our listeners? Well, spice bush is a wonderful one. I, I'd love to have that. In Wisconsin, we don't have spice bush, unfortunately. So that, but that is a wonderful one. What I like to suggest is that you have some sort of fruit for birds and actually also shrubs that offer, you know, that attract insects for birds all through the year. For example, just talking about fruits, if you had service berries, which there are a lot of variety and service berries to their shrubs and trees. Those are one of the first to ripen in the spring of the year. So I, I have a service berry, and that's one of the first that ripens. And of course, there's when it's uh, in flower, it's attracting insects for the birds. Another early one is choke cherry. So I have both of those, and those are my earliest ones. Then in the summer, there's just a plethora of great shrubs. Uh, lots of the raspberries and blackberries are great for birds. Of course, not everyone wants brambles, but there's mulberry, for example. Even roses offer rose hips. Oh, another one that I really like is nine bark. Nine bark is a very, very showy shrub with lots of flowers, a great foundation plant. It has seeds for the birds later on. So that is a wonderful one. I, I'd like to mention, though, for example, about nine bark in particular, that is one where there's a purple type of leafed nine bark, and that is one of the nativars 
while it does add color to your garden, it is not good for the insects that need that plant. The changing color, this is kind of like a native uh, cultivar produced from the native species. The changing color changes the chemicals in the plant so the insects can't feed on them. That stops the value of that plant. So a lot of the nativars, those cultivars of native plants, don't give the same value to wildlife as the native shrubs and other flowers in all species for that matter. So and some of the worst things are a change of color and if there are double flowers. Now that doesn't happen as often in shrubs as it does in wildflowers, but yes, we kind of like to avoid those two in particular. But they have found that every species is different. So in general, though, native ours haven't been as valuable for wildlife. They don't have as much pollen or nectar or maybe none of them, neither, I should say, or they just didn't fruit. It was a low-growing, fragrant sumac. And a friend of mine wanted to planted a garden for birds and was talked into that low-growing because it would, would fit her yard better. And it turned out that it never produced berries. <laughs> and that's one of the trade-offs. When they produce a native bar, you lose some things generally because plants can't do everything. So in her case, her fragrant sumac didn't produce berries. So she was disappointed about that. So that's why I don't recommend native virus. I think we need to go to straight species and ask for them. And if possible, go to a native plant nursery because you don't know for sure the origins of the plants in, in the big box stores. Right. I was just thinking the other day, there really is no such thing as real-time gardening. Gardening requires research into the plants. It requires observing your yard very carefully to figure out where the damp areas are versus the dry areas, where the sunny spots are versus the semi-shady spots. It requires planning in advance in terms of ordering plants, trees, and shrubs, and then planning ahead. And then it requires a lot of waiting, <laughs> a lot of waiting, a lot of patience. It really is not easy to find a native nursery or a native plant seller in some regions. Yes, we're very lucky here in Wisconsin. They're they're pretty readily available, although, you know, they're not like next door, like you can drive a few blocks perhaps to go to a say Steins and pick up your plants you know it's not quite that abundant but we do have some excellent nurseries checking with your nearest wild one chapter or you know maybe a native plant society and I think you'll be getting better plants that will last a long time as I said in the winter you might want to put a some sort of wire barrier around so that critters don't don't chew on the bark below and of course deer can be a problem too and that that was sometimes if you put a top wire on it the deer are less likely to chew on them so yeah that's important and then you know gradually they'll be more hardened off and probably succeed with hopefully without watering i have to mention though with climate change you never know nowadays you might have to in the past we always said well don't water your garden you know droughty times pass and your native plants should survive but things are much more extreme now so i'm thinking that in my case personally if it's a very severe drought here i would probably water which i ha- wouldn't have done you know like 10 years ago say but our weather is pretty crazy now. So I think because it's so extreme, 
heavy water events and then long drought periods and so forth in different areas, I think we have to manage a little more, even the native plants than we did before. Right. Now, do you ever winter sow seedlings to plant in the springtime? Yes, actually, I did that this year. What I always try to do is add a few plants that will add to the diversity of my area. Even though I only have two acres, which is a pretty small yard, and part of it is a little kettle, so <laughs> that takes up some room. But yes, I'm, I'm especially trying to introduce plants that are more conservative. They give a lot of plants conservative values, and the more rare a plant is, the more conservative it's considered. So I've done some seeding of some of those plants, and I also am growing some plants in a milk jugs because I wanted to make sure they, they grew very well, and I'm going to replant those. So yeah, I'm trying to add diversity, and they, they do tell you you know, a lot of the experts say the best way to manage a natural area is to continually add and supplement seeds a variety because we're not getting the seeds from, you know, I mean, my neighbors have no native plants except trees, I guess. So, uh, yeah, they're not going to come from any place unless you add them. Right. And seeds are relatively inexpensive compared to plants. And and then they can you know, take a few years. Again, you talked about slowly watching, but watching can be fun, too. And, and you can enjoy watching all the insect relationships, the birds that come in. So as you, they gradually grow and your plants become more established, there are always changes. That's the beauty of native landscaping too. It's not static. It's always changing. It's fun to see the changes. Most of the time, unless you get invasives coming in, which we all have to fight, I guess. Right. So uh, tell me some of the plants that you uh, winter sowed. Well, let's see. A gentian. I actually found one single gentian popping up in my yard. And so I added some more gentian seeds. That's one of them. I added a parasitic plant that's supposed to help make sure that the um, native grasses don't get too abundant. It kind of is a control because a lot of times in prairies, the native grasses can be getting a little bit aggressive. So I added one of those. Well, Mariette, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's just such an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to someone who has been patiently tolling the bell all this time, you know, to help us understand that native plants are the way to go. And I I want to thank you for that. And I think it's time for your book to come out with a new edition. (laughs) Well, yes, tell that to UW Press. Yes, that would be (laughs) wonderful. Okay, I will. I'm going to call them. I'd like to thank Marriott Nowick for joining us today. You can find her book, Birdscaping in the Midwest, A Guide to Gardening with Native Plants to Attract Birds, on Amazon.com and the Barnes & Noble website. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And now for more of my personal story. We were taking a break one day at the Bird Center after a very busy morning when the front door swung open 
and several Florida Fish and Wildlife officers walked in carrying 11 pelicans, all of whom were presenting as weak and lethargic. The officer said a large band of pelicans had become caught in a deep freeze in South Carolina and had somehow made it alive to the Keys. And the officers believed these pelicans were part of that group. They had been found waterlogged and floating listlessly in the ocean. They all had hypothermia. As I carried each pelican to the examining table, I noticed they could barely lift their heads. They were existing on the edge of no return. I learned that when it comes to hypothermia, time is of the essence. We immediately prepped the necessary enclosures and put the birds under specially designed heat lamps, which are very effective for severe hypothermia. The heat warms right to the bone and quickly dries the bird's feathers, restoring body temperature. Hypothermic birds are extremely fragile. They have usually used up a great deal, if not all, of their body fat in order to stay warm and are often on the verge of dying from emaciation. Hypothermia occurs when a bird's core body temperature drops due to prolonged exposure to cold temperatures. This drop in temperature can result in a lowered heart rate. As a result, there is less blood pumping through an animal's body. This can lead to organ and tissue damage, if not outright organ failure. It can also cause frostbite, and we noticed several of the pelicans had frostbite burns on the webbing of their feet. Thankfully, all of the cases were mild and could be treated. There are several causes of hypothermia, one of them being sudden exposure to freezing weather, but injury can also play a role in causing the bird to lose its ability to thermoregulate. Aquatic birds have multiple layers of downy feathers to protect themselves from cold water, and they have an oil gland they use to preen their feathers. This creates a waterproof barrier. But a laceration from a fish hook on the bird's body can allow cold ocean water to penetrate beyond the downy feathers and spread across the skin. In addition, something like an oil spill event can compromise the protective oil layer on the bird's feathers. When that occurs, hypothermia is sure to follow. I learned that it only took a small breach of the insulating layer, basically the diameter of a quarter, for a bird to get into serious trouble. In fact, for many birds, a fatality occurs not because of the original injury, but because of the secondary hypothermia that sets in soon after. After a lengthy session under heat, along with warm fluids and antibiotics, the pelicans started to revive. Once they were stabilized, we also treated them for emaciation and parasites, and they began their long rehabilitation back to full health. They were very lucky pelicans. They had been found in time to reverse their condition, and it was a joy to release them on the beach and watch them fly back to the open ocean, wild and free once again. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.